This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. Now, there are over 3 million teachers in this country, and I'm proud to be one of them. To me, it doesn't matter if you teach third-grade mathematics in elementary school or corporate finance here at Wharton. Technology is changing our jobs as educators. Kids learn a lot of things via YouTube videos or Khan Academy, and as we learned from McGraw-Hill and Lynda.com in an earlier show here, professional learning is changing as well. So the process of education and the role of technology in it is really of twofold importance in my show. First, education has many jobs as its own industry. And second, education will also be essential to help us transform our workforce in any sector of the economy. So once again, today, we'll journey into the world of education. To help us understand these topics, I have two great guests. René Baton is the director of U.S. Public Sector Education at Cisco, the largest network technology company in the world. And in the second half of the show, I will talk with Leah Belsky of Coursera, the company that pioneered the massive open online course movement. At this point, welcome, René. How are you? Hey, René, if you think back through your own education, what was the best educational experience you ever had? Is there a moment that stands out? I think, Christian, it was really about the professors who I had when I was in school, both at Santa Clara University and Stanford. And I think it was those uh, professors who were, and teachers, as you mentioned, in K-12 through as well. It was those, uh, th- those teachers who were able to engage in a conversation and really make the class interesting, regardless of whatever technologies they might have been using. Isn't it fascinating? Right? We talk so much about technology, and back then technology might have been a PowerPoint slide, and nowadays you have all these kind of devices in class. And at the end of the day, a good professor with a piece of chalk is still the best learning experience there is. Yeah, and I don't know about you, Christian, but one of my earliest uh, memories in school was watching the first uh, man walk on the moon on a snowy a television set in black and white. And so those days have definitely changed. Now we can actually take students on a virtual field trip to the moon or to the Smithsonian Institute or to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. That guys us to my next question. If, if you would go to the local high school down the street here, tell me what type of Cisco products you would find in a typical K-12 institution. The, the products that we're seeing increasingly in our K-12 schools is certainly all of the underlying infrastructure to make the best technology experiences possible. So everything having to do with networking, routing, switching, wireless, and then certainly security everywhere. So as we see more and more connections to the Internet, schools, colleges, and universities are realizing that they absolutely have to have secure environments for teaching and learning, student data, research, knowledge, and information. But I think the other thing that we're we're seeing that's so exciting in schools across the country is video in the classroom, video and new collaboration technologies to create these immersive, engaging learning environments for students that help to augment that great teaching that we see across the country and the globe. So if I think about Cisco, I, I first and foremost think about the kind of the technology infrastructure that you guys have just been uh, so influential in. Um, mm-hmm. When I think about Cisco then in education and learning, are you just in quote unquote just are you just putting in the pipes and the infrastructure or are you also more in the application layers of this technology stack? That's such a great observation, Christian. We're certainly known as the company that built the Internet. And so everything that you mentioned, the routing, the switching, wireless security. But what we may not be as well known for is that we're actually an education company. So we were founded out of uh, Stanford many, many years ago by two IT professionals on the Stanford campus. We created the Cisco Networking Academy over 30 years ago, and we've actually put 6 million students through that program since inception. And that program is intended to help to equip students with skills in IT. We also have a broad range of IT certifications. So for individuals who want to go out and work in IT, we provide all of those Cisco certifications for them. The other thing that we do that's very exciting is that we have a number of different research partnerships with universities across the country, and we have solutions for education. So video and collaboration solutions that we have are really the best for creating virtual classrooms and virtual learning environments. 
So tell us about the use cases of virtual classrooms. I mean, for us here at Warden, who with, with operations really in San Francisco and in Philadelphia, your telepresence solution has been influential for us. But uh, as much as many uh, high school teachers might enjoy being away from their students physically, the reality of most K-12 settings is probably still a teacher standing in front of the students. You're absolutely right, and the Wharton School is one of my favorite examples of innovation in terms of uh, higher ed. But in K-12, we are seeing more and more virtual learning environments with video in the classroom. We have one example of a sixth-grade teacher who actually schedules WebEx classes. So WebEx, as you might know, is a web conferencing tool in the enterprise, but it's also an amazing tool for education for virtual learning. So this sixth-grade teacher uh, schedules WebEx for every single class that she has, and students are able to log on even within the classroom because some of them might want to see the teacher over video. They might want to be able to have the content that the teacher is presenting on their tablets or their laptops visible to them. They use that tool to be able to interact and engage. And, by the way, if they happen not to be in class, they can connect from home. So if they might be homesick or they can't come to school, they can engage in that way. And I think what's important about this, Christian, is that this is how kids really like to engage and to learn. And this is the workforce of tomorrow. So this is how we're preparing them so that they can go out and get jobs in environments where they have to be able to be collaborative and engaging and interactive and use these tools to do that. Let's stay with that WebEx example for class for a moment. Uh, having, I mean, spent a lot of time in the WebEx world and then in, in my Coursera courses have gotten familiar with these kind of the, the, the more open courses. So the use case that you're describing here, Renee, is, is, is one, though, of the class is still intact as a community. The teacher just teaches through WebEx. So mm -hmm. you have the 25 kids, of which maybe at any given day one of them is sick. So you have these 24 people in the room. One of them is following through WebEx conference from, from home because he or she is sick. Now, mm -hmm. what, help me understand the value add for the 25 24 people in the room. What, what, what part of their learning is, is better? Is it that they can press on replay in the evening and just look at the recording? Is it that they can kind of doze off for a moment and press on replay? Mm -hmm. uh, is it that they press on fast forward and they can go into recess 10 minutes earlier? So where, where, is, where is the customer value here? That is a, that, that's such a, a good question. And I think the value is exactly what you said. So they can certainly press on replay. I don't know about you, but there were many times in my classes where I would have loved to have heard a replay of the lecture. I would have understand, understood it much more effectively if I'd had that. So it is that. It's the ability to replay the lectures. But also, there are some students who are really shy, and they may not want to raise their hand in class. And they would much prefer being able to ask a question through a web-based portal in this, in this way. So there are collaborative rooms that are connected with WebEx, and they can go in and, and literally ask a question of the teacher that they may, be too shy, they may be too shy to raise a hand. So they can ask a question. They can connect with other students in that class. And I think the other value with these integrated collaboration video environments is that teachers can pull in guest lecturers from anywhere in the world. Uh, so whether it's an expert in math or science or another really interesting speaker, they can use that same exact platform for that. Now, I, I still, and I'm an operations person, so I find the detailed dynamics always really interesting. So, so I think most of my students would rather want to have a fast forward or a skip button in, when it comes <laughs> to my lectures, right? But I'm just kind of wa walking through the kind of the 45-minute math class on April 24th in uh, here in the Philadelphia local high school. And I'm just kind of trying to understand what, what is the benefit. Um, so I, can, I, I like this idea of anonymous chat element, right, where you might be too shy to raise a question. You message the teacher saying like, look, Mr. Tervish or Mrs. Jones, I'm really struggling with this concept of a derivative in calculus. And could you please repeat this? And there's a certain kind of element of, you know, it gives me a certain comfort that I can do this anonymously. I, I might feel uh, shy because of Mrs. Jones is a very kind of authoritative teacher. I might mm -hmm. not want to kind of come out in front of my, my peers asking this question. So I, I can see that. But 
Uh, a lot of the other benefits you're describing, having that kind of that person who kind of was the, the person who was up on the moon or the kind of the expert who won the Nobel Prize, I just have a hard time seeing that benefit at the level of the high school. When it comes to a university and an open course where I have 10,000 kids, I could see these benefits. But that, that group of 25 kids, can't they just talk to each other or is that too old fashioned? Well, they certainly can, but let's take a broader example. So another example, and you talk a lot about operational efficiency, is in high school districts across the country, they may not have enough AP calculus teachers, for example. So in one K-12 district, for example, they have five high schools. They have one AP calculus teacher. And so rather than hiring an AP calculus teacher for every single high school within that district, what they're doing is using Cisco telepresence to be able to scale that one teacher to teach AP calculus to all of those five high schools within the district. So they literally have a telepresence room on each campus so students on each campus can go to the telepresence room and they can take AP Calculus. So those students wouldn't have had the opportunity to take AP Calculus if the district wasn't able to, which they, they couldn't afford to hire these extra teachers. So all of a sudden now you have that efficiency of one amazing AP Calculus teacher who's teaching these students across the district uh, that same course. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Rene Baton, who is the Director of U.S. Public Sector Education at Cisco. And we're talking about what technology can do in the classroom. And I, as, again, as an operations professor now, uh, I, I get excited when we talk about efficiency. And first of all, I, I think, Rene, the, the way you describe efficiency, we, we don't think of it as cost-cutting, right? It's, it's enabling in a way that mm-hmm. these kids would otherwise not have had AP calculus. So having that technology is not necessarily laying off 10 AP teachers in Absolutely. calculus. It's bringing uh, Chinese to a class of uh, maybe in, in rural Ohio where they would not be able to afford a Chinese teacher. Um, so... Um, is in your experience, we're going to talk with Coursera later on in this show, and I've done a lot of work on the Coursera model. Mm-hmm. The benefit of the Taylor presence of being at least remotely, but being in a, in the same presence at the same time with the teacher, is there big uh, incremental advantage compared towards a more Coursera Khan Academy type of model, where there's basically every day there is kind of a, a video or two to be watched, and then it's more of a flipped classroom type of experience, where uh, again the the video is produced asynchronously from the actual learning experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right, and I, I, I definitely think there's a place, um, a great place for Coursera, for Khan Academy, for all of this rich content that we're seeing out there today, which is amazing. I mean, we had nothing like that when I was going to school. But you hit on a key point, which is synchronous versus asynchronous. The idea behind a lot of these technologies, between our technologies with WebEx and, and Telepresence, is being able to create those synchronous learning environments so the student can actually be there over video with the teacher. And then I think the other thing that creates huge value and can also augment Coursera and other online programs is this persistent learning environment. If you think of a tool like WebEx and our new WebEx Rooms applications, this gives the opportunity for students to connect with one another and with their professor and with their TAs, with their K-12 teacher, before, during, and after the class within a persistent chat environment. And that's exciting because then as we look at the, you mentioned applications and the API layer, now we have developers coming in who can develop applications against the WebEx Rooms application and create virtual tutors, virtual chat um, environments for students to really personalize the learning experience. How much into the actual content do you get? I mean, a lot was connected technologies in general. There's lots of beautiful data that is coming out and in a world of big data then that gives us uh, opportunities to figure out that more students struggle on lecture 13 if it is delivered uh, in this way rather than in that way. You could do some A-B testing where the students learn faster in way A or in B. Um, How much of that do you get into yourself as Cisco versus how much do you enable and have then other companies just operate on your platform? Absolutely. So we so when we look at data analytics, we really look at data in terms of the network. So what are the kinds of 
uh, analytics, what's the sort of data that you can get from the network, from the wireless network, the wired network, and then what are the learning analytics? So we're, we look at them in kind of those two different buckets, and then how do you bring them together? So we're not a content provider, but we, we are an enabler. So we are working with a number of different providers to be able to integrate WebEx within their learning within their content applications. So we're looking at it from that perspective. As we look on the horizon, one of the future things that we're doing is how can we take the data from the network, from learning, from different content applications, and be able to help K-12 teachers, professors, to harness that data for better decision-making so that they can then turn, then turn knowledge into wisdom. And, and that's really where we're going in the future, I believe. Knowledge into wisdom, that should be the title of my future career. Uh, I love that <laughs> slogan, but um, help me understand a little bit the business dynamics of that. And so, so I mean, we talked a lot now about the use case, and I, I think you make a very kind of compelling argument for that. As a business person, at some point we have to talk about money in one way or the other. Uh, mm -hmm. So imagine I would be the principal at a local high school here. I have, you know, let's say a thousand students teach from ninth grade to 12th grade, and I want to have a Cisco tailor presence in my, in my school, and I want to have a certain percentage, say half of my courses, benefit from the WebEx technology that you, you just described. Uh, what's the budget for that? Order of magnitude. Well, I think when you look at the you look at the numbers in K twelve, I think there's a great case to be made. And, and you mentioned it's not about laying off teachers; about it's about making sure that students have access to scarce resources. So I think one very valid metric is the number of courses that a high school or a you know K twelve district can offer based on this technology they may not have been able to offer AP Calculus without this technology. So I think it's the number, quality, type of courses, number one. And I think the other thing is really, it's really about engagement and how do you get students to come to school and engage because their attendance matters and schools are measured on attendance. And so they really do need to create these environments where students are going they're completing their courses and they're well prepared to go on to college or career. Now, you mentioned number of courses as an important metric, and I mean, we use that number here at, at Wharton as well. We pride of ourselves, we're proud that we are the school with the most electives of any, any MBA program. And so number mm -hmm. of courses I see as a benefit. So help me understand how this happens. So one way of doing it is that the high school that I'm now the principal of comes to Cisco and says like, I need AP calculus or I need uh, Bavarian language instruction as an AP course. Uh, can I just basically buy it? I'm paying so and so much to buy the seat. The other one is basically the district has this skill that was, I think, only the use case you described earlier on. Uh, the district has 10 high schools uh, and one of the 10 high schools offers that course. And mm -hmm. what Cisco does is basically just enables the sharing. Are you in the business of selling specific courses also? Or are you just, are just again, I don't want to say just with in the intent of it's not a lot of an achievement. Are you just in the business of providing the technology and what content plays on that technology is really somebody else's worry? Yeah, the we're definitely not a content provider, Christian. However, I think one of the things that differentiates Cisco is that we'll go out into K-12 districts and colleges and universities and really focus on the problem that that institution's trying to solve. So if they're saying we need, we, we, you know, we have these 10 campuses and we only have one teacher, we'll really use that as a starting point based on the data that they share. So they might say we need to expand access. And so we'll literally work with them and go through different organizational change management processes, design thinking approaches to help them to figure out how to get from their as-is state to their future state. And that way, we're really helping them to meet their requirements. And by the way, it could be Cisco Technologies. It could be other ecosystem partners who we work with, for example, to integrate WebEx with their existing learning management systems. It might be another content provider for virtual field trips. It could be an artificial intelligence provider for better student retention. So those are the kinds of things that we do to create this holistic environment for them because it's not just these products aren't just bolt-ons. They, they need to be part of a larger strategy within the district. 
I want to circle back to the earlier question, and I, I think maybe out of politeness you were somewhat ducking the question. And, and if, if there's <laughs> confi confidential data, please please feel free to, to not share that information. Um, but let's let, give me a sense of budget. So when you you have thirty thousand schools that you've worked with, if I would put a pick a typical, and when I say typical, let's just say a median budget. <clears throat> How big of a technology budget is required to get me a telepresence room, a good amount of WebEx conferencing, and the support of a Cisco design study which looks for my educational needs at my high school? Give me like an order of magnitude of a budget. Oh, I wish I could. They're so they're so different across the board. Even if you were to pick a medium-sized school, it really depends on what it is that the school is trying to do. We typically see within education that the IT budget is anywhere from two to maybe five percent of the total budget. Now, that's again very traditional uh, sort of infrastructure, wireless security technologies. But I think that's a good ballpark in terms of what most IT budgets are across uh, K-12 and higher education. So in my school in Germany, we had about a 1,000 kids. Uh, we had mm -hmm. uh, one janitor, a principal, and the principal had an admin, and everybody mm -hmm. else was a teacher. Now mm -hmm. schools have IT support, specific, uh, IT support staff, they have counselors, they have a nurse in this country, they have educational designers. Um, so when you talk about 2 to 5% IT costs, is that including the... Uh, IT support as well, the human resource costs for the IT support, or is that literally uh, license spendings and, uh, and just hardware depreciation? Yep, product services, hardware depreciation. Um, the salaries tend to fall into a different bucket. And, and the, I think the other reality is, is that many schools are cash constrained here, so they may have more resources than they've had in the past, but they still have a hard time finding the resource to do the things that they'd like to do. So one of the things that we also do is help them with different programs uh, that will support their funding, their, their purchases. So whether it's Cisco Capital or whether it's helping them to think through different grants that they could get within the district, those are some of the things that where we can provide guidance on that. And we're also trying to make the technologies more simple. So, for example, our Meraki solutions are very, very simple. And in some cases, we have the uh, primary school secretary who's managing the wireless network because we've, we've made it that simple to be able to manage and, and maintain. So, and to, to kind of summarize that, that budget element, so you mentioned 2 to 5% on licensing at hardware, probably another 2 to 5% on IT support, and again, your goal being to simplify that uh, and, and thereby reducing the total cost of ownership of these systems on the schools. Um, is there a, a general strategy that I sense here that you want to go more from just, again, I'm saying just in a very polite way, from just providing the hardware, just providing the product into playing more of a service game? Absolutely. A absolutely, Christian, because it really isn't about the technology. And you said it in the beginning. You can take a great teacher and have a chalkboard and a piece of chalk and create an engaging experience. But it's about creating these media-rich environments for students because we're preparing them for the work of tomorrow. And that we can't just throw technology at the problem. And I think that's been a challenge that they've had in the past. People will the teachers will go out faculty members will go out and and have technologies and they don't necessarily there's not necessarily an integrated strategy or plan so that's really what we're doing is we're we're trying to say what is it that you're trying to accomplish what are the outcomes that you'd like to realize and then how can technology enable that and there are all different kinds of approaches that they can take but it really isn't about technology first it's about what are you trying to accomplish first and then how can technology help you to create these next generation learning environments. Here at Warden, we had the privilege and the pleasure of being at the forefront of a lot of that, and Cisco, as we discussed earlier on, was an important part of that. So I think there's one part of your business, I'm sure, is just rolling out these best practices to many, many more schools. What is mm -hmm. happening at the very forefront? If you come up with, an, if you should tell our listeners like five years, 10 years from now, the cutting edge, telepresence is new for many K-12 schools, but in executive education and business schools, it's something that is already five years old. What, what is going to be 2020, uh, 2020 is so soon, sorry. Uh, what is 2030? What's education looking like in 2030? Well, let's talk about that. So I'd like to mention security first 
Christian, because I think, again, with 50 billion connections, uh, things being sensors, devices, things being connected to the Internet by the year 2020, security is going to be a huge issue. And we talked about Cisco and the work that we do with research universities. And one of the things that one of our Cisco fellows has been able to do is to use artificial intelligence and machine learning to identify malware on encrypted networks. So we've actually been able to identify with our new network intuitive uh, where there's a security issue, and then we're able to fix those without decrypting the data stream. So I think security is going to continue to be a huge, huge imperative on the, in the future and on the horizon. I don't think that's going to go away. I think the next thing that we're seeing that's going to be very exciting is augmented reality and virtual reality for these more engaging, immersive learning experiences. So imagine a virtual anatomy lab being able to travel inside the human arterial system. So that is definitely on the forefront. Again, I think everything having to do with machine learning and AI, not only for security, but to determine where a student is in the learning process and to help personalize the learning experience for them. I think we'll also see greater flexibility of courses and degrees and attendance. So imagine a student being able to put their own course of learning together based on different MOOCs that might be available, courses from uh, Wharton, from other universities across the country. I think we'll see that. And I think we'll see environments where students can learn without limits. So they'll be able to learn anytime, anywhere, on any device. And this is the work of tomorrow. And Cisco is really at the heart of all of this with the underlying infrastructure, wireless security, leading edge video and collaboration, video in the classroom our investments in research and uh, for innovation, and our continued investment in equipping the workforce of the future with a networking academy and new IT certifications. Says Rene Patton, the Director of U.S. Public Sector Education at Cisco. Thank you so much, Rene. Work of Tomorrow is what Rene said. Uh, somebody ought to create a radio show with that title. I love it. <laughs> in case you, uh, we need to take a short break right now, when we come back, I will welcome my second guest for today, Leah Belsky, who is the Vice President of Global Enterprise Development at Coursera, the company that pioneered massive open online courses. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Tavish, and this is Business Radio, powered by the Walton School and Series Exam. We'll be right back. Now, going into the second half of the show, I want to welcome my second guest, Leah Belsky, who is Vice President of Global Enterprise Development at Coursera, the company that pioneered massive open online courses. Welcome, Leah. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Leah, I take some pride in the fact that I was one of the first Coursera instructors when I launched my operations management course back in 2012. Uh, back then, there were five courses. How many courses does Coursera offer today? Absolutely. So we've grown tremendously. We've got over 2,000 platform on the courses on the platform, and have now expanded to a global community of over 31 million learners as well. Now, other than my course, I don't, not to put you into pressure here, but do you have like a favorite course? Um, my favorite course is actually one of the global favorites. The course called Learning How to Learn. Have you have you taken it? Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. I've uh, shame on me. I've not taken it, uh, but I've, I've heard of great things about it. Yeah, well, it's a fantastic course, which really takes a look from an angle of cognitive and neuroscience, and really lets you to step back and figure out how it is that you can dive into learning. And it's particularly relevant given that so many of the people on the Coursera platform today are not necessarily in school, but have finished school and are really trying to dive back into their own learning journeys. So Leah, I, I recommend you take a look. Uh, Leah, talk more about Coursera. I mean, for those of us not familiar with it, who does it serve uh, and, and how does it work? Absolutely. So Coursera is one of the largest um, educational platforms on the web. It provides courses from uh, over 140 top global universities um, and a number of different university credentials. So we include courses, we have online degrees, and we serve um, a global community of learners, both through a consumer business, um, as well as over a thousand enterprise companies who partner with Coursera to upskill and reskill their populations. So talk about how that works out as a student. So I, uh, I'm a student. I want to take a course in learning how to learn or in, in Greek mythology, and I sign up at Coursera. What, what happens next? So what happens next is you, you pick a course, um, and then most of our learners are actually coming to us through our mobile apps. 
So once you're enrolled, you'll be presented with a syllabus um, on your phone, either on an app or on a desktop. And each of the classes will be broken down into short snippets of video, of readings, of quizzes. Um, the average module is about seven to 10 minutes. And it'll basically be a learning experience that you can consume at any time, anywhere, whether you're commuting, whether you're up at, at night. And as you proceed through this learning experience, you'll get to both interact um, with peers in global forums, as well as mentors who are active in many of the courses, giving feedback and engaging with learners. So and should you finish, which we hope, yeah. Which I hope you, I was just heading there. Go, go on. When you yeah, finish. So for those, when you finish. So for those who finish, you earn a, a certificate from the university from which you've taken the course. And this certificate has value in the world. It's actually one of the most popular. The Coursera certificates are one of the most popular on LinkedIn. And you can take this, this certificate, put it on your CV, put it on your LinkedIn profile so that the whole world knows that you've earned these skills. One critique that has always driven me nuts, but a common critique is these low completion rates. And I've always argued that, well, of course, if you let me enroll for free, why should I finish the course? But um, from the people committed to or reasonably committed and going like at least the first quarter through the course to the people finish, uh, what's the kind of retention rates of, of, of people who, who started the course towards uh, their certificate? So the retention rates are about 60% if you look at paid learners and you also look at enterprise learners. And, you know, it's an interesting, as we've dug more into this, it's an interesting. Some people learn because they want to complete a course and they want to get a certificate. Other lear others learn because they want specific skills and so they're sampling a bunch of different courses. So we actually feel quite good about the completion rates among um, committed learners. Another thing to know is that a huge population of learners is now going through our online degrees and there the retention um, rates are breaking the industry standards. There are about 93% of, lear of learners who are proceeding through our degrees um, are continuing and progressing. Leah, would you feel offended if I would call Coursera be uh, as a retailer of, of courses? Is, is the term retailer something that feels inappropriate for you or...? Because you're um, not you're not creating these yeah. courses in the sense that it was uh, it's the universities, it's, it's professors that are creating courses and put them into your store, and you're doing the tremendously important job of matching that that course with a learner. But you, other than providing the platform, you're not producing yourself. Do you are you a yeah. retailer, or is that missing the point? No, I think in many ways we are a real retailer. We think of ourselves as a global educational marketplace, but not an open marketplace. Um, like you might see it as Craigslist, something much more akin to Amazon, where you have highly curated, high-value products um, that are there because people have reviewed them and they're getting results from them. But absolutely, we are the intermediary. It's our partners who are creating the content, both university partners and top-tier technology companies like Google and IBM. And we think there's huge value in the world of being this intermediary platform between learners educators and companies and that's where we that's where we focus how does this process of curation and creating a course works now so i have loving memories back then in uh, in the old days so to say when i put my course online and i got stuck i would just set up a skype meeting with your ceo daphne Koller, and she would help me with, <laughs> with the problems i would imagine with 2000 courses that doesn't work anymore so so how much labor is involved on your end if there is an enterprising, an ambitious, a motivated, a talented instructor from a university who wants to put his or her course up on Coursera, how much, how much work is there still involved? Um, so certainly these days most content creators are not getting on the phone with our CEO. But there's many content creators now that are engaging with the platform without talking to us at all. We have um, technical support folks who can get on the call and answer questions. But the platform has advanced now that a lot of the pedagogical advice um, the sequencing is built into the technology. Where we do get on the phone is we have a team of teaching and learning specialists who are often before a course is launched, more at the conceptual stage, helping professors and helping educators figure out how to break down and structure the course so that it can be most effective on the platform. But otherwise, it's largely self-serve. It's self-serve, though, the thing that, well, one of the things I also enjoyed was your community aspects, right? Because you have uh, then the, the, your platform is a technology where people don't just interact with me or my teaching assistants, but they interact with mentors and each other. Tell us more about that part. Yeah, absolutely. So um, those who are teaching on Coursera are brought into the community in a couple of points. 
Um, one is upfront, where we hold content creation workshops where you're exposed to learners, you're able to define the target learner that you're looking to educate, you're exposed to other teachers, you're exposed to um, expert um, pedagogy specialists. And then once courses are launched, we often have our professors being active participants in the forums, engaging with students, engaging with mentors, getting feedback from mentors. And then what we do is we have our data scientists and our pedagogy folks look at the feedback from learners. So we're in touch with you throughout the journey so that if there are certain modules or certain quizzes that learners are not getting value out of, you can actually change them up and change them and update them along the way. So for us, typically somewhat ego-centered instructors and faculty, I, I think many of us, when we started, we always looked at Coursera online teaching only as the second good best thing, right? The, the real thing was to, of course, come to our classes. What I was always puzzled by or shocked by, maybe even, is how many learners actually prefer the video format over the classroom format, right? Because there is something called a fast-forward button in video learning or a skip button. Uh, and for the more interested learner, there's also a rewind button. And so there's this opportunity to learn anytime, anywhere. Um, so you tell us a little bit about who is enrolling the, in these courses, because they are not the typical college learners, right? Yeah, absolutely. So our average learner is tends to be beyond college. It's, these are BA students, a vast majority of which are um, globally around the world. And these are learners who who want to be able to learn flexibly while they're at a job, while they're doing other things. Um, that said, we've seen a huge transformation in the way in which online and video-oriented learning is used um, even within the standard educational communities, I was, a friend, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day who has a son at Stanford. Two of the three courses that he's taking at Stanford this quarter are online. Um, so we see online learning progressing, and one day we suspect all education will be online, and just in the same way that you know, we used to talk about e-commerce for things that we bought online versus things that we, we bought in a store. Today, it's all just commerce. Uh, so... Yeah, so that's our perspective. Well, so I, I love that part when people make predictions, and I, I've made enough predictions myself to know how painfully wrong I was on most of them. But <laughs> so your hypothesis there, Leah, is that all teaching will be online in the same way that we would now only in rare instances go and buy a book in a bookstore. Again, I, I love bookstores, and don't get me wrong, but the, the we, have seen, we have seen the light, we have seen the new way of doing things. So uh, is, that, is that, did I hear you correctly on that prediction? Um, so not quite. I think that all courses in the future will include some online elements. So I would wager that in every undergraduate course, say over the next decade, you will have learners engaging and students engaging online in some form, whether it be an online article, whether it be an online video. So it's not that in-person learning or book-based learning is going to completely disappear, but that people are going to flexibly move between learning online and learning in the classroom. And it's starting to change, and it has been changing the way in which in-person and classroom time is used. That's, that's the prediction. And that means from the workforce perspective, there is, how does this change the need for workforce in education? Well, so what it does is it does two things. From a workforce perspective, you know, companies have already always spent a tremendous amount on, on learning and educating their, their folks, but, you know, upwards of about $1,500 per employee per year, that's a standard investment in learning. But a lot of that was in person, and so it was limited to either very critical functional roles, whether that be learning how to stock shelves at a store or whether it be learning how to be a cashier or to senior executives who are all flown into one place and, and given an executive education class. What the online learning does is it allows people to be able to, corporations to be able to educate their workforce at scale and to make these courses available to many, many more individuals on a much broader array of topics. The other thing that we're seeing is because online learning can be deployed more expansively, companies are starting to focus on core and foundational skills that they think workers will need in the future and deploying them to, to um, retain them. So, I'm happy to give you two examples. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. So I'll give you two examples of the way in which we see online learning being increasingly used in, in a corporate context. Um, one is a, is a company named AXA. So AXA is one of the largest international insurers. But what they've decided to do is to make um, Coursera available to all, all their learners. They've 
mapped Coursera to specific skill sets that they think the insurance industry and people in their company need to attain in the future. And look, these are insurers. These are actuaries who realize that their career is going to be completely disrupted by the advent of new data and data scientists. And so they realize to be impactful in the insurance industry in particular, they need to develop new skills in data, in digital marketing, in business analysts. Um, so that's one great example. Another great example is a company named L'Oreal. You know, L'Oreal is one of the biggest fashion brands in the world. And yet they need to be very concerned about startup um, cosmetic brands like Glossier or others that will just launch on the web with very little brand marketing and suddenly become the great new big thing. So they too have launched Coursera to their um, to their employee populations so that their employees can learn things like digital marketing, can learn things like data, and learn how to innovate the way in which the latest startup companies might do as well. So these are two examples of Coursera partners that are partnering with us both to engage their employees, but also to serve very, very specific business goals so that they can ensure that their workers have all the skills they need for a new economy and that the companies as a whole can continue to innovate. I think both of those are great examples where you could just get more learning for the dollar invested into the employee. Um, there's a second element that one that I've kind of given some thought with my, my colleague and friend Carl Ulrich. Uh, on the kind of the workforce for us as educators. And we, we kind of liked, uh, compared the scenario a little bit of what happened to the, the clowns in the old days, right? The clowns in the old days, you had to certain, every village had their clown on the local marketplace that tried to be funny and was entertaining a small crowd there. And then there came the movie theater. And with the movie theater, you had some clowns that made a lot of money and they were really funny and gave access to jokes to people around the world. But most clowns went out of business. And so I'm just getting nervous about my job here. <laughs> um. Look, I think there will always be a place for top-tier... Thank you. You didn't have to say it this way. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you're not a clown, but you are You are a professor, and I do think there's always going to be a role in a place for institutions like Wharton and other universities where that have the privilege of educating people who have the time to take off and the resources to pursue um, education on-site for many years. Um, that say, you know, we're looking at a workforce where over 300 million people over the next few years will be going into the global economy. And it's very clear that institutions like Wharton and other top-tier schools are not going to be able to have the scale or the resources, nor do they have the mission to educate this broader workforce. So that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about making education like one might experience at Wharton available more broadly um, to learners and to employees and to individuals who don't have the opportunity to go through this tiny, tiny funnel of established, land-based, um, top-tier educational institutions. Now, Leah, you said this in, for me personally, at least a very reassuring manner, but I also did sense a certain threat in there, right? So the, you said, like, if you are at Wharton, if you are at Stanford, there will be unlimited demand for your services and you will stay employed till retirement. But there's a certain threat that if you are at Southern Nebraska Catholic, and, and sorry, I, maybe there's even institutions like Southern Nebraska Catholic, but if you are at a small school that is not ranked in the top, 100, 500 of the university world, that somebody sits there and says, like, well, I could either go to that school or I could get a Stanford education for free by enrolling in a MOOC. Isn't there a certain threat element in there? Look, I think there, there is a threat for our lower tier universities, particularly those that haven't been able to find a business model that both ensures that those who invest in a degree are going to get um, jobs and skills for the future. And, and we see this again and again with many of the sort of lower tier schools closing or changing their business model. So there is a threat. But I think the threat is one about return on investment of what they're currently providing. Um, MOOCs, I wouldn't say, are the thing that's really posing the main threat to us, to those types of institutions. Now, what I do think is the threat is what we're starting to focus on now, which is online degrees. Um, so a big, huge focus of Coursera is to make available top tier scalable degrees at about a quarter of the price. Um, we've started with about 10 master's degrees that were recently um, announced and have one BA degree that's coming online as well in computer science. And yes, if these degrees prove to be effective, which they certainly are so far, I think this type of education will be a really aggressive competitor to um, institutions that cost four or five times as much and require 
require learners to take off from work for four or five years and pay pay tuition to be able to attend. So there there is a threat. So with Coursera and maybe to some extent even because of Coursera, this concept of the flipped classroom has gotten a lot of attention where maybe my friends at uh, Southern Nebraska Catholic and my producer, my dad's just double check. There is fortunately no Southern Nebraska Catholic, but uh, that school is now uh, basically, they might just be in trouble because people is going on Coursera. The alternative is they could offer Coursera in the content and they would focus their own teaching basically on the mentoring, the motivation, the uh, basically everything that comes with a flipped classroom where you help the learners digest the content. Is Do, do you see many Coursera courses being used that way on at smaller universities in a flipped classroom environment where it's another faculty who is basically acting as a role as a moderator for this content? You know, we do see many faculty members using courses content. Right now, it tends to be within the universities that have created the content. We have a couple big global educational partners. So there's a massive university system in India that uses Coursera courses and licenses them for the students. There's another big um, university system in Cambodia that does the same. But it tends to be in the same way that you know you would have a bookstore on campus sponsored by Barnes & Noble or Amazon and send your students to to acquire those courses. In those, in those examples, we don't see the use of Coursera as fundamentally changing the business model um, of the university, though it may be changing the way that professors teach and engage their students. So you mentioned this idea of a return on investment uh, earlier on, and this, since this is business radio, at some point we have to talk about money. Um, so how does Coursera make money? Absolutely. So Coursera makes money. Um, through three different ways. Um, one, we charge fee, a subscription fee for our courses to consumers who choose to purchase those courses. It's about $50 a month, and then it's discounted in, in other other regions. Um, second is we make money by partnering with companies um, who roll out these courses to their employee bases and pay Coursera recurring license fee. Um, and three, we make um, money through our online degree partnerships, where Students who pay tuition for the online degrees, largely paying it directly to the university, then um, we then share in that that revenue as well. So it used to be uh, the kind of we love learning, and I, I hope the slogan has not changed. But is it fair to say that as the business matured and you've proven with the number of learners, the number of courses, there is really a big opportunity here? Is it fair to say that the last couple of years have been a little bit more on the business emphasis? I think it's both. You know, what I personally love is Coursera, and I'm someone who's come both from the international development sort of philanthropic space as well as hardcore startup environment, is that we're seeing a correlation between the revenue we're able to drive as well as the expansion of global access. And for sure, Coursera has honed in on a business model that's going to be incredibly powerful and now allowing us to scale this company. But in so scaling, we're also able to push these courses, you know, through marketing dollars to more and more learners who might never have known about Coursera, never had the opportunity to learn in the way they now can. If you think about any university, I think there's always a certain privilege that we have in the university, especially if the university sits on, on big endowment as we, we have the luxury of, of being here at Penn, where... You, certain courses play in more money than others, so to say, right? I mean, if you look at uh, teaching subtleties of the Bavarian language in Philadelphia here, you might basically not get a lot of tuition dollars out of that course, and you have to bring in a Bavarian teacher uh, for fairly big resources. Versus if you're teaching a certain course like Introduction into Microeconomics, there basically there are many students, and it might not even cost you a lot of delivering this. Um, when you think about courses that you want to have in your portfolio, how important is that element of uh, of the kind of the financial value, the the business value, the, the the things that again we in the university world have gone through, but it's a little broader than just learning. It's really like professional skills. It's really the 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 people the the, the market segment in education where people are willing the most to spend the most money for. Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, when we look at what type of content to produce and courses to produce, we're essentially looking at demand. And so what you basically can look at is both historical trends on the platform as well as trends in the labor market. And so in some cases, it ends up being courses in data science and business fundamentals, skills that have already been flagged in the broader economy. 
But part of the reason we also expanded our portfolio beyond the universities to bring in companies is that we've also seen a demand for really applied content that are not the type of skills that universities have traditionally um, taught. So to give you an example, one of our major partners right now is Google. Um, Google has launched both a specialization, a, a certificate in information technology, which is designed for learners who have no technology experience to go from zero to within eight months being able to have a full career as an information, um, as an IT technologist in a company, as well as with the Google Cloud team. Google Cloud has realized that in order to expand their economy and expand their ecosystem of skilled professionals who can use cloud, they actually need to train technologists in core cloud fundamental courses. Um, so we found people like Google to complement the foundational um, learning that we're seeing the universities provide. How do you think of your competitors, or do you think about uh, firms like uh, Lynda.com or edX as competitors, or what is your relationship to them, or where do they fit into your mental model? Um, we, we see all these, these other companies as part of a broader ecosystem, and you know, we see everyone rising over time. I would say in the, in the enterprise space in particular, whereas people like Lynda and Udemy tend to have more of a catalog approach where companies will make available a big catalog of skills to their employees. Coursera has brought in a more strategic pointed way when businesses have very specific skills that they want to develop within their workforce. And they want to motivate learners to study in a deeper way, not just a five-minute video on Excel, but to actually take a course for a month or two and develop crew credentials and experience in a field like data science or machine learning. Um, so we see a nice overlap uh, among all these companies and have really seen sort of the unique role that Coursera has to play with its university partnerships in this broader educational technology ecosystem. So for you going forward, it's really the act of curation and finding a certain product market fit that is critical from just being a catalog provider. Yeah, it's two things. One, it's about ability to curate and allow us to expose very specific skill-based content And two, it's about focusing on credentials and making available credentials from our top-tier partners for people who want to both learn but also earn a credential and have a true impact on their careers moving forward. Says Leah Belsky, the Vice President of Global Enterprise Development at Coursera. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.